This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Good morning and welcome to Dollars and Change. I'm Catherine Klein, Vice Dean for Social Impact at Wharton. And I'm Cheryl Coolman. It's great to see you, Cheryl. We haven't done this show together for a little while. We haven't done it for a while. We've got our, our new producer. Our new producer. Big shout out. Welcome to We're, Matt we're waiting Gatson. to him. <laughs> we are. <laughs> we have the familiar gang and the new gang. That is great. We have a great lineup. Are we going to scare him today? Go go rogue or something? I th- yeah, we haven't planned that. <laughs> can, can we go rogue? Can we go rogue without planning? I, yeah. Like... We're ditching dollars and change, whatever with the guest, you know. Catherine's We're just, just going to sing all I'm day. Gonna, I'm going to sing. <laughs> I'm going to sing and you'll dance and, you know, and then, then we'll be okay. Then we'll alternate. Exactly. <laughs> okay, so maybe not. <laughs> maybe not. So maybe we'll talk about what we usually talk about on dollars and change, which is a subject near and dear to our hearts and our work, really focusing on the, the business of social impact, the ways in which businesses are contributing to positive social change in the world. Always, you know, I love. I have to say, I've always loved prepping for this class. For this class, yeah. uh oh, it's not a class. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> sorry, listeners. Promise, it's not a class. My classes are pretty entertaining too. I hope uh, and informative. But I just, you know, it's always so uh, interesting and inspiring to really have this opportunity to prep and read about what our yeah. guests are doing. Um, you know, I shout out to our producers who find excellent people for us to talk with, and we get to see the cool things they're doing. So I'm psyched. Absolutely. Uh, so we're gonna, we're joined in the studio uh, for this first segment with Andy Rocklin from the uh, Reinvestment Fund, talking about their impact investing work and their work to revitalize cities and communities. So I'm psyched uh, to have our own. Uh, yeah, and the elect- nice thing about the Reinvestment Fund is that they're they're not a newbie to this. They've been around a long time. Yeah, yeah. So right, right. we can talk about. A lot of history on this. Yeah. 32 years. <laughs> 32 that, years. That exactly. is a long right? Well before the term impact investing <laughs> had made it into any any vernacular. Uh, so that is great. And then we'll be talking with Justin Block in the second segment, Senior Manager at Feeding America, the largest uh, hunger relief organization in the world, I believe. Uh, so interesting work on with a technology focus to... to kind of expedite uh, the use of, of food that might otherwise go to waste. And then in the final hour of the show, we'll be talking with Joel Solomon, author of The Clean Money Revolution. So let's get started. Great to have you here, Andy. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So uh, tell us about your you know, your role with the reinvestment fund. The reinvestment fund, as you said, has been around for 32 years. You've not been with the reinvestment fund uh, in Philadelphia for 32 years, but you've been involved for a long time. Sure, absolutely. Um, I basically oversee our front office, so the teams that go out and find investments to make and do the credit analysis and figure out if we want to make them and then structure them and and close them and actually put the capital in the deals. So I I sort of feel like I have the fun job. Actually, a quick question then. Who are these? When you talk about, let's start with investing. So when you talk about the the reinvestment funds uh, work in impact investing, who are the investors? So the investors in Reinvestment Fund, we have about 1,000 investors, and they range all the way from individual people. The minimum investment size in the fund is $1,000. Which so, is very accessible. Um, yeah, it's relatively accessible. A lot of people can get in. I'm an investor. You know, um, A lot of the staff are. And then that ranges all the way up to you know the, the bulk of the capital. We manage about a billion dollars. 
<clears throat> excuse me, uh, comes from the big financial institutions where you get capital at that scale, right? So big banks, we have relationships with a lot of the big banks, insurance companies, things like that. Interesting. So really a full range of investors. Have yeah, it goes yeah. all the way from, you know, literally your grandma to all the big names you've heard of. Yeah, exciting. Uh, and and so, well, so let's stay on that point for a moment. Are there challenges? You know, it's an unusual model, I think, right? The uh, that when when for most funds you've got a much higher level of uh, you know of a minimum investment. You all are taking a much smaller investment and major investors. Mm-hmm. How does that work? Um, you know, it's really relatively straightforward. Um, what we basically did is we're a nonprofit, right? So you can't actually invest in us in the way that most of your listeners who are, you know, work in the financial world think of it, right? You can't you can't own a nonprofit, mm. so you can't make an equity investment. Nobody owns reinvestment fund; it, it's owned by the public. Um, but so when we say investors, what we really mean are uh, lenders. Mm-hmm. Truly, uh-huh. uh, what we did is we just created a note program and we said, here are the terms, right? If you lend us money for X years, we will pay you back all of that principal and Y interest rate. Mm-hmm. And that makes it relatively simple for folks to put money in mm-hmm. um, because it's as simple as, you know, as buying any kind of fixed income instrument, Got which it. lots of retail investors do. Got it. Got it. And and let's talk about the kind of deals that you're making. Sure. Um, so we're basically a debt fund. We make loans, not not uh, equity investments, mm-hmm. and we are also not a foundation. We don't make grants. Um, so we're, we're essentially a private debt fund. We're a unique, boutique, little impact-focused private debt fund. And we make loans across a pretty wide variety of areas. We started as an affordable housing lender, and that was what we started out financing. And then over the years, we've grown to include a bunch of different areas. Um, we have a very large food financing practice, a lot of grocery stores and food deserts, but also greenhouses and food distribution centers and anything that's geared toward providing food access where it isn't, Mm -hmm. and particularly healthy food access. And that's part of how it ends up being a kind of impact fund, because you're sort of looking at what are some problems that capital can address, and how do we get money to the people who are going to solve that problem? Exactly. You know, in economic terms, we're looking for market failures. Um, Where is there a market failure, the result of which is a disadvantage for low-income people in places, largely? And how do we use capital to help solve that market failure? Um, you know, we aren't dis, you know we, we don't operate under the illusion that capital is the only problem in the world, right? But it's the problem that we kind of are good at solving, so that's what we do. Um, so yeah, we started as an affordable housing lender, started doing food. We have a very large education financing practice where we're financing early childhood education and daycare and K to twelve schools of various kinds. Um, we have a growing healthcare financing practice where we're financing um, health centers in low-income communities and innovative health delivery models for low-income communities. And uh, we have a, a few other really interesting growing areas. We have a growing clean energy financing practice. And we've also been one of the sort of early movers in the world of pay-for-success or social impact bond financing. Yeah, so lots to lots to talk about. Let me just See, this is walkiness getting fun, right? Yeah, this is good. Well, we usually think walkiness is fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, so let me just wait till uh, you hear my stand-up. <laughs> <laughs> Two impact investors walking to a bus. <laughs> so let me let me ask one question, following up on the notion of a market failure. So you said we look for market failures and then we can invest. You know, I can imagine that folks, when we hear this description and hear the description of market failures, are saying they're nuts. Right, they're nuts. Market failures exist because the market doesn't work there, and, and and loans won't work there, and investments won't work there, and you know this is a low-income community with few opportunities, and it's really hard for the people who live there. It's not a good place for me to to invest money and expect that I'm ever going to see a return. Right, Do you give grants. That's why you give a grant, right? Yeah, exactly. nothing to come back to you. Nothing to co- exactly. So, what's the response to that? What might you know seem to be a a, a pretty obvious question about 
how are you making money? How are you making a return in these places? Yeah, anyone who said that hasn't read Adam Smith, right? <laughs> like going all the way back to the guy who defined the concept of the free hand in the market, uh, even he acknowledged that markets aren't perfect and they fail for various kinds of reasons. One mm-hmm. of the big reasons for market failure is a lack of good information or an asymmetry of information, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, if markets work perfectly, by the way, there would be no investment opportunities because every investment would be perfectly found already, right? So <laughs> That is true. Um, so – you know, when we're, we're often working is a place where the market for various reasons either doesn't know something or doesn't understand something, mm-hmm. um, often because it's not an especially high return part of the market, right? It isn't a place where you go and make, you know, it's not likely where you're going to find your next Google. Mm-hmm. Um, but it can be a place where there really is a market and people don't think there is for reason X, Y, or Z. Supermarkets are a great example. When we started financing supermarkets in food deserts, you know, a number of years ago, um, through uh, some work that we did with the state of Pennsylvania, Congressman Dwight Evans here in Philadelphia was a, a you know, a big promoter of the mm-hmm. concept of, of finding a way to create food access in food deserts. There were a lot of people who ran grocery stores in, you know, sort of typical suburban areas mm-hmm. who said, I can't, you know, I tried to make yeah. money in the city, but my loss rates went up and my staff turnover was higher and we couldn't make it work. Um, when we start, but we said, well, people are buying food, right? They're buying food. Like pe- by definition, people are eating, right? So somebody's <laughs> buying food somewhere. There's got to be a better way to do this. And we found some grocers who were willing to take some risk and experiment with us. And what they found was you can't pick up a grocery store from the suburbs and plant it in, you know, mm-hmm. a, a, mm-hmm. a food desert and expect it to run exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. There are certain things that you have to do differently. Um, investing more time and energy in recruiting the best staff and training the best staff and retaining the best staff. One of the challenges that folks found moving into food deserts was that staff cycled faster than they did in suburban stores. And so they had to make a bigger upfront effort in training and retaining the best staff. Once they did that, that cost that had been a a really significant cost of cycling staff started to go down. Um, And folks also had to think harder about their markets, right? Mm -hmm. Who's here? You know, what what kind of ethnic community are they from? Do I have to serve that specific ethnic community? community with specific kinds of foods. Oh, if I do that, folks are buying those foods. And, you know, those can be high margin items because they're, you know, they come from a specific place. So the, you know, the numbers go up. And, you know, there are some folks who've made very, frankly, profitable businesses out of this, right? You look at guys like Jeff Brown here in Philadelphia, who owns a number of supermarkets. I I mean, he's kind of the poster child, right? Yeah, I don't know that we've had him on the show. We definitely need to get him on. Yeah. Um, You know, he's not the only one. There are other folks doing great work. There's a a group of supermarkets called the Seatown Stores that operate kind of around the Lehigh Valley that serve a primarily Latino market that do a wonderful job. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, everywhere from big operators like Jeff, who has dozens of stores, to the guy who runs the Seatown, who, you know, has three or four and they're much smaller. Folks have found a way to make it work. Yeah. Remind folks that we're listening. We're, we're talking with Andy Rocklin, who's in the studio with us, and he is the managing director for lending and investment at the Reinvestment Fund. So we're talking about you know how we're making impact investing work uh, at a very local level at, in many locations across yeah. the country, with a focus, as we've said, on on, uh, on grocery stores and other kinds of investments. And I like the way you you've sort of phrased the opportunity. It's sort of like they're eating, they're buying foods in those right. neighborhoods. You're just making assumptions about what can work and what can't. But yep. let's let's sort of rethink that vision and what the opportunities might be. So as you're exploring these, you know, these investments, are you targeting? Are you sort of saying, okay, we're going to target a particular sector? We're going to target a, a kind of investment? Because I'm struck as you talk about grocery stores, for example, it sounds like these are lessons learned not from investing in one grocery store in one community, perhaps, mm. but from a, a strategy where we're, you're really learning what's working across cities. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, it always takes more than one time to do something to start feeling like you're really learning something about it. Um, you know, normally we're not starting with a business premise. We're starting with a social problem. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. we're asking ourselves, you know, all right, you know, we're a particular kind of organization, right? We're a hammer. Is this thing maybe a nail where the <laughs> uh -huh, application uh -huh. of capital can be a part of a solution here? Right. And, you know, frankly, there are social problems where the answer is not really or not mostly. Mm -hmm. And there are other problems where the answer is, yeah, capital is a significant part of a solution. Um, you know, again, it's never all of a solution. I think that's you know, I've worked in government and, and the nonprofit world and, and at this fund, and um, I think often people imagine that the money is all of the problem because money can be so hard to come by in mm -hmm. the wrong circumstance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But um, it's only ever, in the best circumstance, it's part of a solution, right? If you didn't have, you know, I'm going to go back to Jeff, right? If you don't have grocers like Jeff Brown who are willing to say, all right, like, let me not assume that just because the business model didn't work once, it mm -hmm. can't be made to work. Right. Let me think about what the parts of my business model are. If you don't have that entrepreneur who wants to take the capital and use it to solve part of the social problem, you can have the biggest fund you want and you're it's just going to sit there. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I think that's always important to stress. Interesting. And, and and what about early childhood? You said this was it. Early childhood education was another area where you're focusing. What are you learning? What are you seeing? What are you doing? Yeah, you know, that's been a really interesting area recently. Um, and hugely you know, important. Hugely important. It's getting a lot of visibility in a lot of quarters nationally. Um, it feels like kind of one of the last things we can agree on. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, we've been working in the early childhood space for a while, but the sort of most recent evolution of it has been um, the William Penn Foundation here in Philadelphia, which is our largest local foundation, really got interested in this question of high-quality early childhood capacity. Um, and... You know, is there enough of it and is there enough of it in the right places? Um, so they actually started out working on a, a data collaborative with our research group that mm. I mentioned earlier and doing an analysis of the Philadelphia market. You know, one of those things I said about market failures resulting from bad information, a lot of times simply because it's less profitable, low-income communities have less, less data collected about them in, hmm. for certain, Interesting. In certain ways or, or low-revenue businesses have less income, less data collected about them. So, you know, if you're Pepsi – you know exactly what your market right. share is relative to Coke, right? But if you run, you know, grandma's daycare, you don't know what your market share is next to Susie's daycare two blocks over, right? You don't know you don't know a lot about your market, about supply and demand. So um, the William Penn Foundation said, all right, well, we're going to solve that information gap. And we worked with them and, and a bunch of stakeholders in the Philadelphia region and did a, a, a essentially a market analysis of the, the daycare market and the, the early childhood education market in Philadelphia. And mapped, you know, where there was lots of high-quality supply, where there was not a lot of high-quality supply, and where there was a lot of demand for that supply. And sometimes they matched and sometimes they didn't. We yeah. actually, you know, because people move and buildings don't. Um, so you can wind up with a daycare in an area that used to have lots of kids that no longer does and vice versa. So that's how it started. And then the William Penn Foundation went a step further and said, we want to invest in high-quality operators um, growing in the places that need the capacity most, especially the low-income places that need the capacity the most. Um, so we worked with them to set up a fund uh, with their capital and our capital, and more recently, Vanguard, um, in one of their first philanthropic initiatives, invested as well, um, and um, are working together to significantly increase um, you know, the capacity of, of the number of high-quality early childhood ed seats in the city, um, a move, obviously, that's been bolstered by the, the local mayoral administration's push to, uh, to fund universal pre-K. And I love how this is um, being um, – the foundation of all of this is research and data. Let's yeah. really try to get beyond our, our assumptions and what we think is true to collect information on this. And I think what you're pointing to is correct that 
it takes money to do that. Data doesn't just come to you in ways that make sense. You've got to spend the time to get out there, understand it, collect it, and make sense of it. Yeah. That's right. Now, I love this example, right, of daycare, because when you describe this, you know, on the one hand, it's like, oh, duh. Yeah. <laughs> like, right? This information would be incredibly useful. And uh, and I can imagine that it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't exist. There's a lot of information that's not collected, but that can really inform strategy in the, in the way that you've described. No, it's true. I think data is really great for two things, right? It's great for telling you that what you think you already know is true or not true. Mm-hmm. And it's great for telling you stuff you didn't already know. Right. Um, and um, it occurred to me that that sounded maybe smart in my head and pretty dumb on radio. <laughs> um, but anyway. The, sounds smart on radio. The, you know, it's early morning. They're driving. Radio has this funny way of like um, m- making female commentators sound like Terry Gross. And I'm really hoping it makes me sound like Ira Glass. That's kind of my goal. Um, I'm not sure I'm making close. it. I think but, you're getting there. Um, you know, the, the, we, we like a comparison to Terry Gross. That's always good. The daycare analysis showed us something really interesting, right? There's a sort of going in assumption that low-income communities are going to have less access to, mm-hmm. to high-quality care. And we found that that wasn't true at all across the board. Um, there were communities that were very low-income that had very good access to high-quality care relative to the number of kids who were living there. Um, and then there were low-income communities that had very bad access to high-quality so care. And, you know, once we figured out which communities were which and started to look at them, it made a lot of sense, but we didn't think of it going in. The question was, have they been low-income for a long time? And mm-hmm. who has lived there for a long time? We found that communities that had more recently become lower income communities that had had rough times in the last decade or decade and a half were more likely to have low access. And particularly if they were immigrant communities where the nature of the population had shifted and you had over the last five or 10 years, a lot more families with young kids moving in. Um, So I was like, oh, okay. And that meant that we could really target, right? There's never... You know, there's there's never enough resources to go around. Um, so, so you're always trying to think like about where do you use them. So it and sounds that like you target. on that point, at the risk of getting a little wonky on the, the research, it sounds go like it. what you are finding in these communities is that in communities that had been low income for a while, they had more of a social fabric, social capital, if I'm understanding this correctly, and and maybe had been found a way to harness resources and 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 create these daycare communities. Whereas where the communities are shifting, it's more complicated. Is that is that mm-hmm. what I'm hearing correctly? Partially, not in every instance. Uh-huh. In some instances, it was that. Um, in other instances, it was that those communities um, had been lucky enough to have, uh, you know, representatives at the city or the state level who'd been able to focus resources there for some time if they'd had a politically powerful sort of patron at a certain point. Um, so there were different stories in different neighborhoods. Um, but I think the important thing that we saw was that the there was. The assumptions that we might have made in the absence of data about there being a sort of perfect correlation mm-hmm. between a low-income community and a lack of access was not actually true, that it was there was differentiation among communities. Got it. And is it when the reinvestment fund, and in this case, are, are you looking, are you doing these investments just in Philadelphia or are you doing them bro- more broadly? No, we're working a number of places. Um, we uh, we started in Philadelphia. We've started doing some analysis up in the Newark area, mm-hmm. um, and again then, with a focus on early childhood again, that, opportunities that particular, for investment. I mean, we do different kind. Our, our research group is amazing. They do different kinds of analyses all over the country. This daycare work they've started doing, um, you know, up in Northern Jersey, and then there's a couple of other exciting places that I'm not quite allowed to say just yet until uh, there's a till there's a press release. But it's coming in a few other communities around the country too, and pretty geographically diverse. Got it. So one question that comes to mind as we as we talk about your work, um, uh, you know, in cities, in uh, in in neighborhoods, to um, you know, to find the, find the investment opportunities that also have a clear impact opportunity, is a questions around gentrification. Like sure. when you invest in a community, 
You know, are you? Are, I mean, is there a point? It's almost like a point of too much success uh, as a potential. We invest in a community. We create all these beautiful structures and opportunities in this community. Higher income people are willing to move into the neighborhood because and it's got grocery stores and it's daycare and grocery all that. stores and, and daycare and other, you know, and, and and green parks or whatever else it is. And they may move, have the effect of, you know, through supply and demand and market forces, moving out lower income uh, individuals. How do you deal with that? Well, I mean, if I could answer that question perfectly, I would uh, be (laughs) a uh, very sought after speaker on the lecture circuit, which sadly I am not. Um, This is just the beginning. (laughs) I do think it's always, you know, that is always a question and always uh, something to take into account. What I've seen, and there are folks who've seen a lot more than I, but what I've seen is the question of change done well is a question of how close can you get to the sort of ideal of a rising tide that actually lifts all boats, right? Mm-hmm. And that isn't mm-hmm. necessarily something mm-hmm. that the market does all by itself right. in my own perceptions. Um, so you know, when you see a community where all that's happening is real estate prices are rising, particularly for renters, yeah. that feels like a rising tide that they're drowning in. Yeah. yeah. Um, for homeowners, it's like, well, all right, I'm priced out of my house, but I've got this big chunk of equity that I didn't have before. So there's a little bit of a, you know, all right, I got something out of the deal. But if I'm a renter, I got nothing, right? All I did was get priced out of my house. Um, but when those economics can be channeled back into the community in ways that are very tangible, um, and I think we're still learning about ways to do this, mm-hmm. um, and you see it reflected in more investment in local education, more investment in local public space, more investment in local community resources like healthcare and things like that, then, I mean, by definition, it's like, oh, okay, I see how I'm benefiting from this too. Um, and, you know, I think we've seen places where that was done a little bit better and places where that's done a little bit um, not so well. Um, but I think, you know, we're still we're still working. You know, the, the community development world is still thinking a lot about the right kinds of tools to make, to make sure that happens from community land trusts to, um, you know, community reinvestment agreements and with major developments and all different kinds of tools to try to figure out what the right balance is between sort of pure market forces and, you know, whatever the alternative to that is. Great. Yeah. And I, I live in a, one of those gentrifying neighborhoods, Fairmont Brewery Town kind of area. Yeah, sure. And it, you can sort of visibly see some of the tension, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the sure. neighborhood changing, looking better and safer, but also, you know, clearly changing the demographics. Um, and I think it's a it's a really interesting challenge about how you make a neighborhood better with more resources and yet still be able to keep the people who were in the neighborhood and would very much benefit from that change. Yeah. Really, Absolutely. really, yeah, really interesting. There's and at the extent to which a community is able to control its own destiny, that the people who are living in a community at any given time feel like they have some say in what's going on around them is a really difficult dynamic. The dynamic between that and sort of the world of private property rights right. is one that's sort of forever in tension and flux, and cities and policymakers are always thinking about how to sort of mediate between those two forces. Right. It's such an interesting challenge. It's occurring, the lots of, it's sparking lots of thoughts yeah. as we talk about yeah. gentrification. At, and one of those is that you know, maybe we just have to have, we, we like have to have, have a, a show. We have to have a show where we really focus on this. At kind of the end of the month, we all focus on theme shows. Yeah, Matt, make I'm that teaching happen. a course on it here at Penn later this year, or uh, next year, I think. On, uh, you are. Yeah, politics and governance in, um, in revitalizing cities. All right. Ooh. So we'll... we'll, we'll we may audit your course. Yeah, we will. We will have you. Uh, we'll have you back on the air, and, and, and we may come into the course. So uh, we're talking with Andy Rockland, managing director for lending and investment at the Reinvestment Fund. Um, so actually, let me follow up with one more question or one more comment on gentrification, and then a, a few other questions as well. Our time is, <laughs> is, time is flying, flying by. by. But you know, one thought is there's a notion. Um, 
in, in some areas of research, really very practitioner or very practical, very practically oriented research, I think, um, which is to look at positive deviance and uh, sort of this notion of where do we see. So it'd be really interesting to, and somebody must have done this kind of analysis to say, where do we see communities revitalizing but, uh, and uh, in ways that are clearly rising, you know, where, where there's a rising tide that lifts all boats. And what did they do? And, and what, what did they yeah. do? Because certainly there are neighborhoods, you know, you, you described yours in Philadelphia. I actually live in Washington, D.C. There are neighborhoods that, that have transformed and, you know, displaced huge numbers yeah. of people. Um, and so how do you do it without that? So we, we will we look forward to tackling that, that, that challenge and, and exploring that. Um, one thing I wondered to Andy is we're talking with you and we're hearing all about these you know, fabulous things that, that the Reinvestment Fund is doing and that you're working on. How, and how much um, are you measuring, record, you know, measuring tracking impact? You know, uh, do you, for example, you know, what do you know? What do you think, what do you know? What would you like to know, for example, as you invest in early childhood education centers in Philadelphia and around the country? You know, so we, like everybody who's been in this field a long time, spend a lot of time and effort trying to track our own impact. In fact, the way that we wound up with a research group within our company mm-hmm. is that we set up a, a group internally to just do research on our own investments and tell us whether or not they were working. And then folks started to ask us to do it for them, and it sort of went from totally inward-facing to mostly an outward-facing kind of consulting function. Um, so, right, we do all the stuff that people do. We have a database, and every time we close a loan, we input a bunch of data about what that project is doing into its database. And we do follow-on research. Our research group will publish, um, you know, for example, on the food work that we were talking about just a year or two ago, we published a study that said, all right, 10 years ago, we started lending to supermarkets and food deserts in Philadelphia. Has the percentage of people who live in a food desert in Philadelphia shrunk or grown over that time? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. can we trace that to our investments? So we, you know, we did all that. We do all that kind of analysis. And I think that's, you know, doing that kind of work. We're not alone. Folks who are in this space try to do it. And it's really important. Um, on the other hand, I think that it's um, importance relative to, um, you know, attracting capital into the impact investing space and other things can be overblown. Hmm. Um, at the end of the day, even the impact investors who say they're really, really data-driven mostly react to their own emotions and their own stories and mm-hmm. their own common and you, sense and, about what works. And you think and I that's think okay? We need to acknowledge that too. I'm, I think it's inevitable. I think it's mm-hmm. human, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, right. We are we are all emotional creatures, and we wind up reacting to things that strike a chord with us. So you know, I think we um, are very, very focused on data. But it's you know, for all of us in this sort of impact field, it's important to remember that we're you know we're all human too, and and to be thinking about you know how we communicate the human effect of what we do. Yeah. And I think that that reminds me a lot of Dean Carlin, who who does a lot of research and data collection. But his fo- focus is very much on what's what's the Goldilocks spot on this. You don't want to collect too little data or mm, things, mm-hmm. data that's useless. You don't want to go overboard and just collect every single thing, you know, this day Andy Rohr plaid shirt kind of thing. Exactly. Where's, where's the sweet spot that gives you the data mm-hmm. that helps you do things better, forward-looking, so that that's you right. know what to do? And it sounds like what you did with William Penn was really was kind really of forward useful. looking. Right. Yeah. I think the really tough thing in in the kind of work that we tend to do is getting the time period right. Hmm. Is the effect one is the what's the effect you're trying to achieve and can that be seen in six months, a year, oh, yeah. five years? Yeah. Um, and how do you yeah. have the fidelity to your own work 
to track the data over a very long period of time, right? Um, because often whoever your initial investor was, whatever the initial investment was, right, five years later, you've moved on. Right. Um, it's one of the really interesting things, I think, actually, about the pay for success or social impact bond work that we've been doing that actually bakes into the structure of a transaction, the economics of an insistence on tracking metrics about effect and impact over a very long stretch of yeah, time yeah. to be able to see sort of, you know, those those longer term effects that are often the real effect of what you're trying to go for, not did someone get a job, but have they kept a job? Have right. they kept a job? And, and, and I think that's always been one of the challenges, especially since a lot of foundation grants are one year at most three years if you get it and sort of saying how I've changed a child's life in one year. Yes. It's pretty difficult to, right. to track. It also makes it hard for us to understand the actual societal economics of different kinds of investments, right? To understand the economics of an investment in early childhood education, you sort of need to think about what the effects are on the kid's life throughout that child's oh, right, life. Right, yeah. the but is huge. how do you, you know, as soon as you start going out in time, getting really good metrics on those effects that, that stand up to scrutiny gets harder and harder and harder. It makes sense, but it's hard to prove. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's a really tough challenge. Right. All right. We have, we have you know, a couple minutes at most left, but I yeah. can't resist. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can't resist. Tell, you know, and, and, you know, we've talked on, on the show a lot about social impact bonds. Tell us about a social impact bond, a specific example that the reinvestment fund has invested in that, you're, you know, that you think uh, you, that you're excited about and probably ideally one that's that's uh, you can describe kind of in practical, clear terms. We don't get too lost in the weeds. Sure. Here's an easy one. Santa Clara County, California. Great. Um, a county that's experiencing enormous economic growth um, and particularly has an absolutely bonkers housing market. Yeah. Housing Silicon, Silicon Valley. Right. Basically Crazy. Silicon Valley. Yeah. What's not as well known is that they have an incredibly intense problem with homelessness. Mm -hmm. um, they have very acute homelessness problems. And from a practical perspective, the county owns the jail system. And it owns the county hospital. And so they know that their expenditure every year to house people in the prison or house people in the emergency room is incredibly high yeah. relative to counties that look similarly. Right. And they felt that the way they had been doing work had not been producing results. Yeah. So they wanted to try something new. And importantly, they wanted to, you know, this is why you 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 take on investors. You want to offlay the risk of what you're doing to somebody else. So they wanted to try something new and they wanted, you know, people to share that risk with them of trying something new. So working with a very well-respected social service provider, they put together a program that incorporates a suite of comprehensive services that had not been put together there before that incorporated housing and drug treatment and counseling and uh, job training and job placement and a bunch of other stuff that, you know, the, the wide spectrum of services that people who are chronically homeless, homeless often need. And, um, they're going to impl implement that program over several years. They're not going to pay for it. Financiers, mm -hmm. we and some other lenders are actually going to pay for it for that five-year period. And, you know, it's more complicated than this. But the basics are um, if people really do stay out of um, hospitals and jail and in housing and in jobs more than they were before right. this program was implemented um, – and the county saves more money than it actually costs to implement the program, right. then we investors will get paid back out of the savings and we'll earn a little return. And um, then the county will kind of know, okay, this works. We, we did it. We didn't have to take the, the whole risk of doing it. Now we know it works and we can implement it all the way across our system, um, which, you know, being able to, to work in that structure solved sort of a whole host of both operational and political challenges to system change in that place. And yeah. I think that offsetting the risk is really important because Huge. if you're going to be trying different approaches – it, it's easy for somebody to say, "I it sounds good, but I can't. I don't have the excess capital to put into that." Yeah. So, if somebody else is willing to take that risk and say, "We'll, we'll share the risk with you," 
It's like, what, why right. not? Particularly, yeah. in gov- I worked in government for a long time, and you know, I know the uh, microscope that you work under when you're in government, and the ways that that inhibits risk taking. Yeah. And also, by the way, in ways that are legitimate, right? Tax dollars are not dollars that are supposed to be sort of first risk dollars. So, you know, I I like the idea that that the public sector can kind of shift risk onto the private sector some when they're trying something new, and also, and if that makes trying something new more doable, all the better. Yeah, what a great what a great example. I I, I like to, I will say I grew up very near Santa Clara County. Uh, you know, I was just out in the Bay Area. You know, that admits the wealth there is huge homelessness. Yeah, uh, really so, staggering, staggering, staggering. And you know, and also it's. It's a really it's such a great example also where there's a, so much data on you know what is the potential to eradicate or to at least ameliorate homelessness through this kind of suite of interventions so uh, this is uh, you know we'll look forward to understanding add, the social and financial impact here you should add access to houses housing for your next class I know I have thought about it so we will put that we will continue yeah. on the list all right we got to take a break we've been talking with Andy Rockland managing director for lending and investment at the reinvestment fund obviously we could continue for a very long time but we need to take a break great to have you with us in studio thank you so much uh, when we come back, we'll be talking with Justin Block, Senior Manager at Feeding America. And uh, we're looking forward to continuing the conversation on, on food insecurity and food deserts with, with, uh, with Justin Block. This is Dollars and Change. We'll be back. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 